Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Last week we looked at seven signs, I love my church family. That was from the first half of chapter 2. And the Sunday before we looked at seven signs, I'm overcomplicating my faith, my Christianity. And that was from chapter 1, verse 12. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've already forgotten about 12 of those 14 signs. So in case it's helpful, you can pick up a printout out in the foyer after the service. And it's a printout that has both lists on it there. Our prayer, of course, is that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers. But in order to be doers, we have to be rememberers. So feel free to grab a copy afterward if you like. Today, we're going to look at the second half of chapter 2 in this book from verse... Verse 12 to 17. If you don't have a Bible with you and would like to use one, uh, the red Bibles are under the seats near you. We're in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is going to explain more to us about why he has not come back to Corinth yet. He is continuing his defense against the false accusations that have made, been made against him and even against the gospel. He's going to point out today a very relevant truth for us. And that, God, that is that God is using all things for good. Bless the young fellow I chatted with two minutes before we started the service who was smiling as he was telling me about all the things that were going wrong in life right now. He said, but we just got to keep trusting the Lord. It was the smile that I appreciated and that echoed these truths that we're going to look at today in my mind. God is actually using everything for good. Beginning in verse 12, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding my brother Titus, but taking my leave of them... I went on to Macedonia, but thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one in aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. Let's pray. Lord, we again acknowledge that we need wisdom to understand these life-changing words that we have just read. There isn't a one here who can't think of a trouble, a trial, a difficulty in life right now. We need to be reminded that you are working things for good and that you do deserve thanks even in these moments. So Lord, we ask that you administer truth to us that we might indeed be a thankful people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, there's only a handful of verses here, but we, we have a mountain to climb, so let's jump right into verse 12. Paul says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, 
Remember, he is on a missionary journey right now, going from city to city, preaching the gospel, revisiting churches, young churches. And he goes on to say, And when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. If we think about what Paul is saying here, we recognize again how deep and meaningful his relationship was with the church of Corinth. This is not just simple fact of where Paul happened to be traveling at any given time. As we studied last week in one of the seven signs that I love my church family or that I love God's people, one of the evidences of such love is that I pour my heart and soul into relationships. I have a spiritual, emotional connection with them. As much as is possible, I refuse to be satisfied with shallow relationships. Paul was so deeply connected with the Corinthian believers that even though he had an excellent, God-given opportunity to preach and teach the gospel in Troas, he had to pass it up or at least wrap it up early so that he could find out how the hurting church in Corinth was doing. We are simply reminded here that when one suffers, we all suffer. Specifically, we're reminded that when we sin, it affects the work of ministry that God is doing through others. Not to mention our own testimony and the work that God is striving to do through us. We are all in this together. When your eye is sensitive to it, you see this theme of togetherness repeated over and over throughout Scripture. Verse 14, look at, how, look at, look at this abrupt turn that Paul now takes. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. If we read that verse on its own, it reads one way. But if we read it in context, specifically in the context of the two verses prior, then we find ourselves admiring the way Paul takes his disappointment in ministry and subjects it to praise. It's as though Paul is saying, ministry didn't go how I thought it should or how I wanted it to, but thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. We're reminded that God is never caught by surprise by our sins or our weaknesses or our schedule changes or our anxieties or frustrations, etc. I love the candid way that Paul views the God-given opportunity in Troas and all that's happening in Corinth and how it's kind of messing up ministry for him. What an example and a lesson for those of us in ministry Truly, that's all of us. But Paul does a 180 in the text here and says, but thanks be to God, because God always leads me in triumph in Christ. Even the stresses and the false accusations and the unknowns and the issues happening in Corinth weren't enough to cause God defeat in Paul's ministry. I look at our extended building permit process. And I'm learning to say, but thanks be to God. Oh, now we need a pond. But thanks be to God. Oh, now we have to pave the parking lot. And everybody said, thanks be to God. 
there is a reason. We don't just say, thank you, Lord. We say it for a reason. And that reason is that God always leads us in triumph in Christ. It's important that our thanks to God, our praise, our trust in God not be empty. Fine, I guess I'll have to just have to trust the Lord. I don't know why, but I'll trust Him. No, there is a reason. There is a valid reason. There is a history of God's faithfulness and a book full of promises that authoritatively substantiate our thanksgiving. More on that triumph phrase in a moment. But first, let's, let's put a little bit of life into 2 Corinthians 2.15 perspective. That health crisis that you might be going through right now is not a surprise to God. That financial shock is not a lost battle for God this year in your life or mine. That broken relationship is not a defeat for God. That unexpected life circumstance that threw you and me off our feet is not a setback for God's good plans in our lives. Thank God. He always leads us in triumph in Christ. Do you and I believe that? Are we experiencing that? In a big picture way, as we're going to see, this thanksgiving and triumph in Christ captures the theme of our entire study in this book, finding real power. Paul says, thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Obviously, we're talking about the victorious Christian life. But let's be honest here. This is one of those spiritual realities that has a very difficult to understand earthly reality. Yes, I know I'm always victorious in Christ, but why do I sometimes feel like such a loser? Why do I feel like my circumstances are so often genuinely getting the better of me, overwhelming me, beating me down emotionally, physically, spiritually, relationally? Those are honest questions. And we've already touched on them some in the first chapter and a half of this book. Let's see if Scripture has any more insights. It does. It always does. We just have to prayerfully and humbly and diligently and submissively dig for them. Search for them as for hid treasures, the Proverbs says. As we approach this awesome text today, desperate for real answers, for real power, we must remind ourselves that the posture of our heart impacts the understanding of our mind. That truth process is evidenced all throughout Scripture. Listen to the first few verses in Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments with you, make your ear attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding, for if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice. 
and he preserves the way of his godly ones, then you will discern righteousness and justice and equity and every good course. That's what happens if we receive God's word with open hand, with open heart, open mind. We see here that the posture of our heart not only impacts the understanding of our mind, it also impacts the blessing of God in our lives. Let's go back to our main text now and seek for silver and for hid treasure. Verse 14 again says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. First and perhaps most importantly, we learn here what we learn over and over and over again throughout all of the pages of Scripture. There is a reason God leads us in victory, and it's so that we can worship Him, praise Him, give thanks to His holy name. The purpose of victory is to turn our attention and our heart to God. As always, the ultimate reason for God's comfort, God's victory, God's provision and guidance, etc. The ultimate reason for these is not that we might live the stress-free life, not that we might be free of suffering. We studied this back in chapter 1 and God's sovereign purposes for suffering and His comfort. And one of the grand purposes, if not the grand purpose for suffering, is so that God can prove He is God to us. When He comforts us, that literally means comes alongside. When He comforts us, and does for for us what no other human being could do, what we could not even do for ourselves, we then learn that He is God and we worship Him. Blessed be God is how Paul started this entire epistle back in chapter 1, verse 3. And we see here in chapter 2 that the daily victory in Christ is not afforded us so we can savor the limelight of sitting in the victor's seat or so we can soak in the pleasures of this life, etc. It is ultimately so that we can worship God. And yes, God loves to pour out His blessing, as Proverbs pointed out. His guidance, His protection, His provision. He loves to pour out these things upon us. He loves us for who we are, but it's the fact that we are made in His image. It is the fact that we are in His Son, and His Son is in us that calls down His loving kindness in the first place. How marvelous that of all God's creation, He would choose humanity to make in His own image. That He would choose to put Himself in us who believe. His own Spirit so that we too might not only be the recipients of his blessing, his comfort, his care, etc., but even the recipients and benefactors and sharers of his glory. That is one of the divine mysteries I cannot wait to see in its entirety when I get to heaven. How is it that God pours his glory upon you and me? We read it last week, verse 1, chapter 20. Chapter 1, verse 20. Therefore also through him, 
is our amen to the glory of God through us. Verse 14 teaches us that our triumph points back to the praise and worship and thanksgiving of God. But what about that daily triumph that doesn't always feel so triumphant, right? What about that earthly reality? We have to dig a little deeper. The verse says, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. God leads. The question is, do you and I follow? Ouch, right? And it's not like God is hit and miss on this leading. It says he always leads. The question is, do you and I always follow? Ouch again. You know, we rarely come to Scripture and conclude that our problems are God's fault. Rarely, as in never. Not if we are honest with the Word and with the Spirit. Because God always leads us in triumph. My prayer is that when we walk away from here today, we cannot get that phrase out of our minds. God always leads us in triumph. Give Him thanks. And we know that we not only have the daily leading, we have the eternal leading. Aren't you grateful that if you and I at times fail to follow, and that's not just an if, it's an if and when, if and when we fail at times to follow, aren't you grateful that in the end, when it counts most, when it counts for eternity, God will always lead us in triumph in Christ. These are truths that Paul has been diligently teaching the church of Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 7 to 9 says, So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. This is our triumph in Christ. Many commentaries point out that the imagery of triumph that would have almost certainly come to these believers' mind was the image of the generals and soldiers of Rome triumphantly proceeding through the gates in the main streets of the city after winning a war, leading them right before the emperor. Commentaries also point out that the streets would often be covered in rose petals or flowers. And as the wheels of the chariots crushed the petals, their sweet aroma would waft through the air and give the people the sweet smell of victory. Incense would also be burned all along the parade route, further enhancing the aroma. Keep this in mind as we look at the next few verses in a moment. But first, the phrase also says, who also leads us in triumph in Christ. Aren't you glad it doesn't say, who always leads those who are strong enough in Christ? Who leads the survivors in Christ? Those who are good enough. No, it doesn't say that. Victory doesn't belong to the strong or the mighty or the noble, as we studied in 1 Corinthians 1 not too long ago. On the contrary, God chooses who? The foolish, the weak, and the base, or the lowly, so that, as the text says, no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are 
in Christ Jesus, who became to us another one of these heavenly mysteries that is happening. Jesus Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. We're looking at the incarnation of Jesus Christ and the continued effects of this. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul hasn't changed his tune from 1 Corinthians to 2 Corinthians, has he? Or to more accurately say, God hasn't changed. God is faithful as we studied last Sunday. And we're just reminded in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. His word is consistent. And because it's consistent, it's trustworthy. It's just as true and dependable today as it was the day it was penned. It's just as true and dependable for us as it was for the Corinthians. Even in asking the question, are we following the God who leads? We recognize that it is not by our good intentions or our strong will that we can even follow Christ. It is in Christ. That is, in His power, His wisdom, His holiness, His victory, that we are miraculously enabled, spiritually enabled, to follow God in victory in Christ. And we notice here that the active present tense of the phrase is used, always leads us. It doesn't say will lead us, as in someday, future tense. It doesn't say could lead us, as though he can but might not. It doesn't say should lead us, as though he is obligated but might fail or forget his duty. Young people, appreciate the fact that your parents and teachers are demanding good grammar understanding of you. It makes a difference when we read and study the scriptures. We see here the tense of the words, God always leads right now and without end. To fully appreciate what God is doing, we know that faith must be present in this daily victory. Faith reminds us that even in our suffering, even in our trial, God's leading in victory is so sure and so active and so secure that we experience a portion of the comfort and joy even now. These are divine realities. The definition of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 is so remarkable. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The King James Version uses the words substance and evidence. Substance, it's so real, it's as though we could touch it. Evidence, it's so real, it's as though you can see it and use it in a court of law. The judge and jury cannot deny it. <clears throat> Faith makes these promises virtually hard fact. Faith sees the future active fulfillment of God's promises as though they are present reality. The victory is as good as won. It's that moment in battle or in sports or in a good game of chess where you see it. I'm going to win. There is no possible way my opponent can get out of this. In chess or checkers, it's that last move or two or three 
that you don't even play because the game is clearly over. Christian friends, let us not lose sight of that heavenly reality in this earthly life. As Wearsby says in his commentary on this text, we do, not, we do not fight for victory, we fight from victory. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. That's what Paul said in the middle of his affliction. The verse continues. That's just phrase number one. Look at what Paul says next. And God manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. Think back to those petals lining the streets of Rome. As the chariot wheels crush them, beauty emerges. If we think of the Old Testament tabernacle, the temple, we have the incense burning as a beautiful aroma to God and then to all who are near. Paul says, even in our struggles, especially in our struggles and trials and afflictions, there is a sweet aroma coming from the victory and knowledge of God in you and me. This is a fascinating analogy. I hardly saw any of it before I began studying, but it grew and it blossomed as you'll see. Look at the exact wording in the context. And again, let us find the silver and gold that God intends for us here. The verse says, God manifests through us, not just through creation, not just through His only Son, not just through His sovereign power, but through us. How humbling, how awesome that God chooses to reveal and make known the scent of divine victory and worship through us. We don't do it. He does it. And He does it through us. Paul's going to emphasize this over and over throughout this epistle. The phrase continues, God manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him. When a person experiences the truth and the triumph and the praise and the thanksgiving of God, when they know Him, God uses their testimony to infuse the air with the sweet aroma of Himself. Think about this. This is what looks like this is what it looks like, what it smells like when God changes a person's life. Friend, ponder the immensity of the privilege of knowing the Almighty, of experiencing life with the Creator of the universe, the Eternal Holy One, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and ponder the privilege of being filled with His beauty, of being a conduit of His stunning glory at work in and through you and me. There is something beautiful and wonderful in this reality. What a shame if we are plodding through life often unaware of what God is doing at that moment. Such personal knowledge and awareness of God is like wearing the perfect perfume. It's like the perfect bouquet in the center of the room. 
What did we read in Jeremiah last week? But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. It is a delightful and beautiful thing to know God. Who doesn't want to be beautiful? This is true beauty. And it comes in the middle of suffering. What an astonishing reality. Verse 14 further teaches us, the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. <clears throat> true beauty doesn't change based on location. It doesn't change based on circumstance or company. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. What was sign number six that we're overcomplicating our Christianity? Our Christianity changes based on who we're with. We act and think one way to church, at church, but another at work, another at home, etc. But not God. Because God is faithful. And everything about Him is faithful and consistent and dependable. This spills over into the life of the believer who knows God, who is experiencing, not just has experienced, but who is experiencing God. The sweet aroma of their knowledge of Him is in every place. Our children should observe our sweet knowledge of God at home, not just our peers in the Sunday school class. Our co-workers, our classmates, should hear and observe and smell, as it were, our knowledge of God, not just our church family. But yes, especially our church family. As we've been learning from Paul these past few weeks, God is manifesting through His people the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Paul further defines the every place in verses 15 and 16. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. To those who reject Christ, the sweet message of the gospel will be a condemning message, a message of death. But to those who repent and believe, who believe the word of God, put their faith in Jesus Christ, the sweet message will be the life-changing aroma of eternal life, of a relationship with God, of forgiveness and cleansing, the aroma of freedom from guilt and shame, the daily grace of God, the inheritance that is undefiled, reserved in heaven. We're talking about the spiritual blessings of heaven. Listen to the parallel truths we find in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is verse 3 through 11. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, 
In your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful. In what? The true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, what does it say? You will triumph in Christ. You will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. All of that is included in the aroma from life to life. But not everyone will hear and smell and know and experience that glorious message. For some, the gospel will condemn. We all love to quote John 3.16. The wonderful message of forgiveness and eternal life. But what about the other verses? Verses 18 to 22 teach us, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. I mean, these are obvious truths. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought, worked in God. Friend, if you haven't come to the light of God, won't you turn to him today? Why not? What better alternative have you found? Choose to repent of sin, to turn from it, to sorrow in it, and believe. Let your sorrow be turned to joy. John 3, 16 and 17 do say, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That is the gospel. That is the heart of Christianity right there. Verse 17 says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. According to the Bible, the Word of God, if you choose to put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, you will not perish in the sure judgment of eternal hell. You will instead be the recipient of God's free gift of eternal life, as we see in Romans. Why don't you pray and tell God that you believe today? Turn your life over to Him. Follow Him. Believe His Word. Believe it is the ultimate and only source of truth. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That, that was His position that so much of humanity rejected. They said, you can't be the Son of God. Instead, believe that he is the Son of God who came to save the world from the curse and the penalty of sin. 
What is that penalty? It's death. Believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. As Romans chapter 10, verse 13 says, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the promise that so many of us here are banking on. If you have questions or want to know more about being saved, please talk with me or Pastor Mark or any other here. We'll meet with you right after this service or sometime this week. We can set up a time to just open the scripture and let you read it for yourself and let you decide for yourself and see if you don't find what so many here have found, the power of God, the power to be forgiven, the power to hope, the power to rejoice no matter what life throws at us. We have hope. Look at what Paul says next. End of verse 16. And who is adequate for these things? Who can do this incredible stuff that we just looked at? Who has the message of eternal life and can give it to others? The power to give it to others. The power to triumph. The power to be that aroma of Christ to God in every place. Who is adequate for these things? You and me in Christ. Where did Paul say spiritual power comes from in chapter 1, verse 2? From God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not from self. I mean, isn't that the struggle of mankind? I will choose my destiny. I will control my life. What a hard lesson to learn. But the truth, the answer is right here. We don't achieve spiritual power because we're wise or strong or noble. Power comes from God and His Son, Jesus Christ. It's what we call grace. Chapter 2, verse 12. How did Paul consistently live a simple, holy life in godly sincerity, both in and out of the church? By the grace of God is by the power of God. Who can do all these same things and live the victorious Christian life as a fragrance of Christ to God everywhere they are in the world? You and me, by the grace of God. In the good times, in the hard times, in tears and in joy, by the grace of God, we can experience God manifesting His victorious gospel message and His triumphant daily grace through us. Paul's going to clarify this even further in the next chapter when he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. We're going to look at that next week. But continue in verse 17 here of chapter 2. Paul now comes at this lesson on Christian living and testimony from an interesting angle. This is all part of what he's just been discussing. He says in verse 17, For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ, in the sight of God. We are not like many, peddling the word of God. We don't use the word peddle much anymore. I had to go back to the Cambridge English Dictionary to get this definition. Especially in the past, a person who traveled to different places to sell small goods 
usually by going from house to house. In the business sense, or in the sales sense, a person who tries to sell things, especially on the street, by phone, etc. For example, of its usage in sentence, peddlers of tax scams have been popping up everywhere, end quote. My MacArthur Study Bible says this in the notes. From a Greek verb that means to corrupt. This word came to refer to corrupt hucksters or con men who by their cleverness and deception were able to sell as genuine an inferior product that was only a cheap imitation. The false teachers in the church were coming with clever, deceptive rhetoric to offer a degraded, adulterated message that mixed paganism and Jewish tradition. They were dishonest men seeking personal profit and prestige at the expense of gospel truth and people's souls. We're talking about sneaky, selfish, sly, slithery salesmen. Paul says, we didn't peddle the word of God. To get an even clearer understanding of this term, one only needs to go to peddle.com. In a most intriguing uh, way, here's how they uh, summarize their company. Sell your used or junk car the fast and easy way with pedal. Receive an instant offer in seconds. Get payment on the spot and free towing. End quote. Sounds a lot like gospel peddling. Sell your junk the fast and easy way. Paul didn't pedal. Now you know we got the title of today's study, Good Scent versus Bad Scent. In a most intriguing contrast, Paul points out that we are supposed to be one and not the other. I never would have dreamed of this contrast, but the Holy Spirit had a lesson in this for us. There are corrupt methods and selfish motives that snuck into the early church and they continue plaguing many churches today. As we wrap up, let me take this opportunity to urge you to please pray for me. Pray for Pastor Mark and every man who stands behind this pulpit that we would stay clear of peddling. You have an obligation. We have an obligation as an entire church family to protect the pulpit and to defend the gospel that is preached in this place. <clears throat> Pray that we would be able to echo what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, speaking of man's wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. There's a twofold prayer for your pastors and all those who teach the word of God here at Discovery. Number one, that we would not preach in the wisdom of men. And two, that we would preach in demonstration of the spirit and the power of God. Nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That gospel message alone.
Pray Titus 1.9 over the preaching and teaching that happens for our church family. Holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Contradiction is coming at Mark and me and biblical Christianity faster than we can keep track. Pray 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5 for us. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. If you were in Mark's Sunday school class, then you know there's a speculation out there called the health and wealth gospel that needs to be destroyed. It is a self-centered, lofty thing raised up against the true knowledge of God. One only needs to read the scripture. Pray 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 4 for us, and for our church family. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. That's quite a charge. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. In a very real way, the pulpit is led by the church, the congregation. Verse 4, and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You and I also need to pray for our church family as a whole, that we will not find pleasure in the tickling of our ears. There's nothing wrong with a little humor or a pleasant illustration, but when it replaces the truth and the whole truth, when it is inspired by the wisdom of men, when it's motivated by our own desires, God help us to spot it and squash it lest we soon turn aside to the latest and greatest convincing myths. Paul says back in our verse here in chapter 2, we didn't peddle the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, there's that godly sincerity again, biblical sincerity, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Christ is our message. God is our witness. That truth, that standard of operation has not changed over the past 2,000 years. It's just as necessary for you as it is for your pastors. As we studied last week, the faith must be ours individually. Each individual can only stand firm in the faith that is theirs. Our boast is that we know and proclaim God. And praise God, as the verse said, it's God who manifests himself to others through us. We don't have to sell anything. God proves himself through you and me, and especially through the hardships, the afflictions, the trials that he sovereignly allows into our life. We don't even have to produce the godly fragrance Paul's talking about. Look at the wording closely in verse 15. It says, we're the fragrance of Christ. God 
manifest the beauty of His Son through us. And it's not primarily to the world. It's primarily to God. Doesn't that raise the standard for the pursuit of holiness? That testimony is not the greatest cause. That personal sense of righteousness and being right with God is not the greatest cause. We are sanctified. We are filled with the beauty of Christ Himself so God can enjoy it. It's for His good pleasure. It's for His worship. It's for His glory. The world and you and me just happen to notice. For some, it's an aroma of life. For others, it is the scent of death. And as we've learned and been reminded today, we don't have to plan and lead ourselves through the battles and the hills and the valleys of this life. It is God who leads, who always leads, who always leads us, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. By the grace of God, in faith, may we live each day in that sure victory. Let's pray. These are, Lord, heavenly truths with a difficult to understand earthly reality. But praise God, they are true. Right now as a church family, we thank you for where you have us. Not just because you deserve thanks. Not just because it's the right thing to do. But because you have earned it, Lord. You have earned our worship, our faith, our trust, our joy, our submission. You have earned it because you do lead us now and always in triumph in Christ. Lord, help us not to walk away from this place making the innocent mistake of trying harder in ourselves. Lord, do what only you can do, and that is to manifest the sweet aroma of Christ to God through us. That aroma of the gospel having not just saved us back on that day we turned our lives over to you, but that aroma that continues to mature and save and purify and make us holy in our living so that one day soon we will experience that current reality of actually being holy in your sight. Thank you that Jesus Christ is in us radiating the sweet aroma of the knowledge of you that aroma of your holiness, your goodness, your loving kindness, your justice and equity on earth. We stand in awe of you. Thank you for the assurance you give us this day that you are leading us in triumph in Christ. We do trust you. We do give thanks. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.